You are tuned into the Dr. Tina Show with Dr. Tina Moore. For more, visit drtina.com. On this episode of the Dr. Tina Show, I'm sitting down with my old friend, Mike Mutzel. You may know him better as Metabolic Mike. What you may not know is that Mike had me on his show, High Intensity Health, way back in the day, and he is who actually got me on the map in the online space, and for that, I am forever grateful. Mike and I are old friends, and we always have such a fun time talking about strength training, metabolic health, muscle as medicine, and so much more. Mike holds an undergrad in biology, a master's in human nutrition, and he is the author of the fantastic book, The Belly Fat Effect, which I highly suggest you read. On today's episode, we talked all things COVID, metabolic health, and more. This is the conversation you've been waiting for. It was an absolute blast. Let's jump in. Mike Mutzel, I finally got you on. I am so excited to have you on the Dr. Tina show. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be here, Tina. Yeah. The last time you were on my podcast, it was my old podcast, and it was right at the beginning of COVID, and we were talking metabolic health to survive the pandemic, Yes, which... uh, Turns out we were 100% correct on that. <laughs> no, we, we got a lot of flack for even you know proposing that back before the data. But as you know, I mean, there's so many studies that have emerged from that, from Kaiser Permanente and, and Detroit, uh, Henry Ford Hospital out of, out of Detroit. I mean, it's just incredible, uh, all sorts of different cohort studies throughout the world. So yeah, it was cool to see it come out, even though um, it seems like common sense, but some people still just do not want to hear it. So it's interesting. I think they don't want to hear it. I think a lot of people haven't even heard it in the first place. I I thought of you the other day. I was sitting in a restaurant and there were two uh, quite obese people having a conversation. And I I heard the the one say to the other, he said, did you know that COVID can infect your fat cells and that your metabolic health is a big player in survival rates? And the other one had no idea. And it was a really, uh, I mean, it was an educated, interesting uh, discussion. The one educated the other guy and they had a great conversation and I was so happy to hear it. It was like music to my ears because I was trying not to eavesdrop, but I was just like, finally, this is a conversation that people are having. And really, I know that you and I both were not beating the drum out of, um, we weren't coming from a fatophobic place. We were trying desperately to help human beings help themselves. Exactly. I mean, and, and the challenge with that is, is people, um, I think there's this whole victimology, safetyism culture that has emerged from higher education potentially or the media or what have you. And so when you say these sort of things, uh, it, it offends and it triggers people. But what we are trying to do is just inspire people because it seems that you know so many people were motivated to get healthy, but that health that the means through which they were getting healthy was hand sanitizer and masking and all that. But like you know, you and I were both encouraging exercise, eat real food, you know, balance your sleep, circadian rhythm. So very basic things um, that unfortunately the experts you know didn't mention on television, so it didn't come across. But but yeah, I mean, it, any disease, you know, so, so if we just back up, if we think about infectious diseases, of course, underlying metabolic and, and immune status matters. But when it comes to things like cancer, when it comes to things like heart disease in particular, diabetes and so forth, uh, all of this really matters. And I think it's really important that we get out in front of this because as we get older, we naturally become a little bit more insulin resistant, a little bit less glucose uh, tolerant and so forth. We lose our ability to regulate carbohydrate consumption and balance of blood sugar. 
And at, and these things are vicious cycles. So the more insulin resistant you get, the more muscle loss actually uh, is experienced. And the more muscle, the less muscle that you have and the quality of that muscle as it declines, that means that you're going to be more and more insulin resistant. So it's this vicious cycle. There's so much research now emerging about the important protective effect of not just metabolic health, but muscle as a, as a core tenet to metabolic health. Uh, and even muscle, uh, independently of fat mass, uh, predicts mortality from heart disease, cancer, and so forth. And there's this interesting, you know, again, we're, we're talking about how fat is problematic, but in some people, as they get older, fat is actually protective. And there's nuances in heterogeneity within where your fat is distributed. Is it around the abdomen or the back of the arms or the glutes? You know, those aforementioned regions, back of the arms, glutes, hamstrings, aren't so problematic compared to abdominal fat. But even that being said, uh, fat, being obese or overweight is much more problematic for a health risk for younger people. But over the age of 60, it's interesting that that uh, link with increased risk of mortality and disease isn't so tightly correlated. However, over the age of 60, low muscle mass is independently and more strongly associated with mortality. So anyway, yeah, getting back to this, it's just so important from all, you know, I think knowing this information helps us better understand fasting, helps us better understand calorie restriction because many people are trying to, you know, for longevity purposes, reduce their calorie intake and, and become, induce these autophagy pathways. But we need to be careful to, so as to not accelerate muscle loss that is already going to happen inevitably as you get older. So I just think this is, this, it's a little bit more of a nuanced conversation. And finally, we have the research that is coming out supporting these independent associations and the health benefits linked with muscle that uh, many people have been taught, you know, you and I have been, we did a podcast on this, I think in like 2015, you know, on the importance of glutes and 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 leg muscles and strength and so forth. But, but you know, now six, seven years later, we actually have the data, uh, which is quite interesting. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting journey because you and I can both agree that this has been a pandemic of, you said something on a recent podcast of yours where you said, you know, that people are under-muscled and and over fat, basically. And it's, that has been longstanding and, and coming and building. And we've, we've seen this for, I've seen this in clinical practice for well over a decade. Um, I worked for my mentor starting in the early 90s, who was a naturopathic physician. And there were a couple of people who were on that trajectory. And there were a couple of people that he would discuss metabolic health with. This is back before there was a paleo diet or a carnivore diet or any specific. He was always always across the board sharing with people that they should probably reduce their carbohydrates, especially as they age, that they were going to become more carb resistant or insulin resistant, uh, not as sensitive to carbohydrate intake. As they aged, we would see in lab reports that their propensity towards diabetes, no matter how lean and active they were, no matter how well they ate, pretty much if you're going to hit 85 or above, we're going to start seeing some changes on labs on fasting insulin and, and glucose, more towards a diabetic lean pre-diabetes. And I think the term syndrome X had just come out when I met him. So it was very new. And so I've been in this, right? I've been in this watching this. And then my own patients, I watched, I'll tell you, I ran thousands of labs and I rarely saw a lack of metabolic syndrome. There was always some now, if you walked in, you know, it, that would be a different story. But generally speaking, your average American between the ages of, say, I don't know, above 35, below 35, I think homeostasis is still working in a lot of people's favor. 
And so it's not showing up yet, but it will. And the glimmers of it were there, you know, in different lab values. And then all of a sudden, there's that magic age where boom, and it's the 40s, the wheels start really falling off the car. And so since I saw this so prevalently, I knew that this was going to be a factor when the virus hit first in China. And then we had those early reports of diabetics really struggling through that process and not making it. And so you and I both knew and several others were talking about it, trying to get the message out like, hey, it's like waving the flag, you know, like you guys, there's so much you can do just simply making changes immediately can start having an impact. We don't really see metabolic shifts on labs for about 90 days, but we can start to see a decrease in inflammation and a, and a softening of that metabolic issue pretty quickly. And my intention that I refuse to stop beating this drum because the pandemic, and you've shared this out multiple times on your social media and your podcast, what are some of the stats since the pandemic started on diabetes in children and adults and obesity rates? Yeah. I mean, that's what's really quite unfortunate about our so-called safety measures is you know, this this undercurrent or undertone of met, poor metabolic health, which, you know, this is NHANES data that stopped in 2018, or 2018, was about 83% of American adults have some sort of poor metabolic health, you know, whether it's, like you mentioned, elevated liver enzymes, elevated fasting glucose, uh, increased waist circumference. And, you know, now, I, I don't know about you, Tina, where you live, but here in Seattle, um, we see so many more, I, I think every category, people that were lean became more overweight. People that are overweight became obese. People that were obese became morbidly obese. And so it was really those two aforementioned categories. The, the overweight beca- became disproportionately more overweight and the obese became more and more obese. So it just it just hastened uh, the trajectory, which is really unfortunate. Now, the most unfortunate thing about that is, like you said, the children. And this is Journal of the American Medical Association looked at, I think it was like 23 thousand different checkups from Kaiser Permanente's health data. And what they found is that children between the ages of five and 11, there was more, the rate at which kids were, people, humans are, are, at least in North America, are already getting more and more overweight and obese. But the the incident, the prevalence of that more than doubled uh, just as a result of the pandemic. Now, we it's no surprise, you know, locking kids in ho- in their homes, you know, scaring them about going to play with other kids or whatever, uh, closing sports and all that just completely backfired. Now, the problem with that and the reason why I've been really outspoken about that uh, and being more proactive about, hey, walk your kids to school, bike your kids. I bike with the neighbor kids every single day for school. And it's great, you know. And kids adapt so quickly. I'll, I'll share with you a small little anecdotal story about that. But anyway, the, the point is... Um, there's this notion of recidivism. And so if anyone hasn't heard about that, that is, you know, when children are overweight, they're more likely to regain, they're not, they're very unlikely to lose that weight and become lean adults. You know, it's just, it's just how the body works. You know, the homeostatic, you mentioned, you know, the body's set point, metabolic rate sort of hits a new equilibrium and it's hard to reverse that. I mean, it's certainly possible, but it's way easier to prevent becoming overweight in the first place than it is to lose the weight once it's already on. And so many, you know, we've had clients who have been overweight their entire lives and they're the anomaly once they're adults that they become lean, sort of metabolically healthy. It's usually, unfortunately, it goes the other way and they get, they become three, four, hundred pounds, right? Because of this notion of recidivism. So that's why um, I think it's really important for not only adults, but 
uh, as parents to share this message with children because unfortunately that that has been the case. But just a small little anecdotal, you know, side story. Okay, um, due to this, you know, it was like Earth Week or something like that around the school, and so a lot of kids had had seen my daughter and I, rain or shine, we bike to school. Um, Biking's been a huge part of my life. I used to race as a semi-professional, so I'm trying to encourage my daughter to bike and all that. Anyway, so the neighbor kids have been seeing us do this, and and they have just small little BMX bikes, and and the mom was like, hey, they want to bike with you. I'm like, that's awesome. Let's do it. Day one, we had to take three breaks. Their legs were burning. It was challenging. Uh, today will be day four, but you know, but just as of yesterday, they were crushing this hill. It's it's like half a uh, half quarter mile hill, something like that. And they got to the top, and they you could hear their respiratory rate was increased, but their legs were not burning in just three days. And, and that's I think a really good point to to illustrate to people is the body adapts so quickly, independent of any weight loss. And you just mentioned this, Tina, about five minutes ago. You know, I, I think some people are like, well, I started working out, but I didn't lose any weight, so I gave it up. That's not the mindset to to approach this as because just one 30-minute walk after a meal or a 20-minute walk, you will notice ne- nearly like your, your post-meal blood glucose can be cut in half by just going for a quick walk after the meal. Now, it's not going to cure your diabetes, but it's going to get you closer to becoming more, you know, sort of normoglycemic. So it's important to understand that you know, if we just focus on weight and you look at the scale, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going, I've been going to the gym five days a week now for three weeks and I haven't lost any weight. You have still made dramatic improvements in your internal metabolic milieu that unfortunately you can't see yet. Now, it's going to take a little bit of time to experience more tangible, uh, noticeable weight loss changes. Some people, it's quickly, you lose a little water, etc. But still keep after it because again, you're uh, improving that that metabolic environment. And it's important that we understand that just because you're overweight, it doesn't always mean that you're metabolically unhealthy. About 25% of overweight and obese people are metabolically healthy on the inside. Likewise, about 25% of normal weight people are metabolically unhealthy. So we need to understand that about, you know, about 25 to 30% of people lean and overweight are respectively, uh, that I say lean first or anyway, about 25% of skinny people are unhealthy. So yes. just because you're skinny, it doesn't mean that you're, um, you, you don't have these metabolic risk factors. And just because you're overweight, it doesn't mean you're metabolically unhealthy. So this is where I think exercise comes in. And so whether you're lean or overweight, exercise should be a foundation of healthy living. Uh, and I think that's a, an important tenant that Unfortunately, the media didn't do a good job about it. And health experts overall, we you know, um, doctors don't do a good job about it because they'll look at your body mass index and they'll tell people that are really physically fit, you're a little bit too big. You need to actually lose some muscle, stop working out. I've had several clients tell me this. Their doctor told them they need to lose weight. I'm like, you don't have much fat to lose. So anyway, this crude uh, body mass index doesn't really quantify uh, and characterize the nuances with body composition. But I think exercise, no matter how you spin it, is very important and because it supports metabolic health. Absolutely. And I want to back up there a little bit because you said a few things that were really critical. Uh, The fat cell thing, the way that I've always understood it is that, and how I've explained it to patients is just what you said, you hit you hit the nail on the head. Uh, If you become overweight as a child, the chances of being a lean adult are is very challenging, and far more challenging than if you had remained a lean child. The reason being is we and it's, I know it's nuanced, but in a, in a gross, simplistic way, the way I describe it is <clears throat> you basically make 
all of your fat cells by a certain age, and then you just start to fill them, right? But if you are a child and you are gaining weight, you're going to make more fat cells. So you're going to have more depots of fat to fill up as an adult, generally speaking. And I, I, I realize, again, it's, it's more nuanced than that. But that's kind of it in a nutshell. You're giving your body an opportunity to really fill up more fat cells as, a, as an adult because you created more as a child. And that's a big problem not even that's just the mechanical aspect not even speaking of the the you know biochemical nuances of being metabolically unsound as a child and all of the problematic sequelae that brings the other part you said is just spot on you know bill dr bill mitchell was a famous i don't know if you ever met him he was a famous naturopathic physician he passed away while i was in school and he would always say after a meal take a capsule of berberine and go for a walk Mm -hmm. That was it. And if you were having struggles in your head, like if you were having mental emotional issues, take a fish oil capsule and go for a walk. But that post meal walk is old school ND 101. And it's critical, like just eat your food, go for a walk. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a 10, 20 minute walk, even if it's just a lollygagging walk, it's so important for keeping blood sugar regulated. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because it's a really wonderful tool that anybody can use. Because it's not necessarily about weight loss. And I know we're going to get to the importance of muscle in a minute. And then you mentioned the whole TOFI, right? When we talked about this before, the thin on the outside, fat on the inside. Can you describe that a bit more for the audience so that they really understand what we're talking about here? Yeah. So um, the normal weight, but metabolically unhealthy, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, like you said, basically this is referring to people who look visibly healthy because they are lean, but there's intra-abdominal fat and ectopic fat. So what happens when individuals become insulin resistant is the liver is trying to convert the glucose into lipids that can be stored. You know, we, we, we think of body fat as being problematic, but your, your body fat is actually saving you from this underlying insulin resistance and potentially persistent organic pollutants by not overfilling your heart, your pancreas, and your liver with fat, okay? And so that's the situation is, is that excessive energy that's being uh, converted by way of this complex process known as de novo lipogenesis. So making fat from a new, usually from excessive carbohydrate consumption and energy. Um, the, the, what happens is that gets stored in different places within the muscle tissue, within the muscle of the heart, the, and also the pancreas and the liver. So individuals who are thin on the outside, but fat on the inside have excessive intramuscular fat, excessive intrahepatic or liver fat, uh, pancreatic fat, uh, and then also in buildup in the heart. And so essentially what this uh, translates into is higher risk for all sorts of cardiometabolic diseases. So for fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance. So uh, I, I, I like to harp on this so that we don't get accused of being called fat shamers, number one. But number two, I think a lot of people say, well, I can eat whatever I want and I don't gain weight, right? There, there's people that, you know, I know, I know people that go to McDonald's, they have Slurpees, they have, you know, milkshakes and French fries, and they don't gain fat. But what that that excessive calories and high glycemic index, what those carbohydrates are actually doing uh, is probably being stored and, and creating this, this intrahepatic uh, fat, this intra-abdominal fat. So more fat uh, buildup within the viscera and omental region. And the problem with that type of fat 
is it's prone to uh, attracting all sorts of immune cells from macrophages and monocytes and mast cells. And so those various immune cells start to release all sorts of pro-inflammatory signaling molecules that cause a a myriad of of damage throughout the body that increase the smoldering background inflammation that are linked with things like colon cancer, that are linked with prostate and breast cancer, uh, that are linked with depression. So these are probably reasons why people who have excessive visceral fat feel more depressed and and have increased risk for all these different cancers. And I think that's really worth sort of mentioning. I just, you know, small little side story. Yesterday, I got new uh, tires on my vehicle. And uh, as they were loading the old tires into my truck, this guy, he, he had been working there. He had told me before he had worked for Les Schwab for 30 years. And I, I couldn't help but notice he had this little fanny pack hanging off the back uh, and it had a tube. And I thought maybe he has a colostomy bag or some such, but it was a clear tube. And I said, hey, excuse me, if you don't mind me asking, you know, it's kind of personal, but what is that little fanny pack? He goes, oh, I have rectal cancer. I'm getting chemo right now. And when he told me, I was staying really close to him, not just how it happened. And when he told that story, and he's like, yeah, I'm a young guy, I'm only 47. And his eyes got really watery, right? And really, really, because it, it was really painful for him to admit, because he's he's been doing tires, managing people, like, it was hard for him to lift the tire. And so I started to lift the other tires. And so we started talking about the backstory and everything like that. And it, it feeds into everything that I was, he, he looked very lean, but he had this big belly that was poking out, you know? And it's exactly what we're talking about. So, you know, he was like, my doctor's so surprised. You know, I, I'm healthy. I'm a lean, you know, skinny guy. I'm not too overweight. And he's like, yeah, I do have a little belly, you know, pointed to, point to his belly. But it was like this metabolic environment is not just benign. This can increase your risk of these cancers. And so he's had to undergo radiation. He's on all these different types of chemo. Then he has to get surgery. And it's like, wow, man, that... I'm not that much younger than this guy. And our bodies look completely different. And it's not from privilege or money or anything. It's just like our habits are different. He probably doesn't go for the walks after the meals. He doesn't lift weights. Um, Maybe he's eating fast food. He admitted, and I, I said, well, hey, what were your first symptoms? He's like, blood in the stool. And I said, well, did that trigger you to go to the doctor? He's like, nah, I just kind of ignored it. It was, you know, I, I tri- you know, chalked it up to eating Cheetos that weekend or having, you know, corn dogs, right? So anyway, the point is here is this fat, we, especially around the abdomen, we really need to take it seriously because it is setting up that metabolic environment that will predispose us to having life altering diseases. And I don't know what it feels like to receive a diagnosis that you have cancer. I'm sure it's terrifying. We want to prevent that, right? And especially colon cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, that lung cancer too is on the rise. Uh, so so friends, this, this metabolic health stuff, it's not just about looking good on uh, in a bikini. It's about preventing these diseases because Tina, as you and I have talked about, there's this whole notion of immunometabolism. And so up to now, we've been talking about intra- uh, hepatic fat, fatty liver, fatty pancreas, fatty muscle. Well, all that is linked to your immune system and your immune system's ability to uh, survey the environment, to uh, get out in front of neoplastic or cancerous cells. And so our metabolism and our immune system are really two sides of the same coin. They feed into each other, crosstalk and communicate. They use the same mediators. You know, for example, you know, when we exercise, we release interleukin-6 and TNF-alpha from the, our muscles. You know, these are cytokines but when they're released from muscles, uh, researchers refer to them as myokines. But either way, these these signaling molecules also affect the immune system. So it's important that we understand that everything that we're talking about here uh, relies 
it's relatable to COVID, but also cancer prevention, also auto autoimmunity, which I think is is really important. It's everything. I mean, this is the conversation we were having prior to COVID, you know, that we've exactly. been having for years. And it's, it's fresh. I, I think that's where you're, you and I had the frustration. I could early on sense your frustration and you could sense mine because we were like, fuck guys. I mean, come well, on. Good. We've been tr yeah. trying to tell you and it's not massive lifestyle changes. It's, and it's not because we're trying to, you know, we, people can point the finger and say, oh, well, you guys look great and this and that. It's like, well, why do you think we look great? <laughs> it's, it's work. It's a hundred percent work. And I, that was the frustrating part was, I think hundreds of thousands of lives were lost that didn't need to be that could have been uh, perhaps altered that that storyline for those patients if they had been given this information early on or if they chosen I mean a lot of people chose not to listen to it a lot of people chose to push back and fight that uh that young man you described is I mean I'm just barely older than him that is straight up the most dangerous phenotype in my opinion that I have seen clinically uh, and I'll tell you a story I used to you know you've come to see me to get injected I used to do regenerative injection therapies when I would suck fat out of people like that and re-inject it into their joints for stem cell therapy their joints would blow up like grapefruits that's how inflammatory even their subcutaneous fat was. And I know that, you know, we and you've talked about it, we could talk about it here too, the difference between subcutaneous and visceral fat, what you were describing earlier is visceral fat. We've I've taken omentum fat out of cadavers, out of fellows with big bellies and people who drank too much. I would bet that that guy probably liked to drink the beers too, you know, um, not pointing a finger, but that's just our society. And we would pull omentum fat out of folks who you could clearly see were not metabolically sound. And it was so different than that of a healthy metabolically sound person. It was a whole different, literally beast, because omentum is just big. It's a big sheet of convoluted, you know, tissue that surrounds your organs and your intestines. And when it's full of fat, it's a whole different story. The, the fat is different. When I would harvest fat out of patients who were metabolically unsound, they're, it was crunchy and gristly, even their subcutaneous fat. That's the level of inflammation that they carried with them. So it's it's just like I felt it from the inside and I've seen it from the outside. And so when I when I beat this drum, I beat it so passionately. I've been even called, uh, you know, people are like, God, you're, you're a zealot. And I'm like, no, you don't understand what I know <laughs> and how dangerous this is and how easy it is to shift because 99% of the time, that's what I was doing with every patient was running their labs with them. And I know you have clients you did this with too, and just showing them like you are walking into a hot mess. And the, the outcome of this is everything bad, right? Everything bad. Uh, we recently had a family member come down with cancer. And I, you know, who knows why too, too young to for real, but also maybe not the most metabolically sound human also. And it's it's just one of those, like, I just want to put my finger on it for almost every reason and say, this is the root of what we need to fix. And what I have found so interesting, and we, I know, we don't have to get into it too far, because I know you took a lot of slack from my profession as well, because you were intimately involved in my profession. Um, but the naturopaths turned on both of us very quickly and viciously. And it was very surprising to me because they should know better. They of all people should know, this is where I learned that information, this information that we're preaching as zealots. And I, I didn't understand why that wasn't doubled down on like across the board, which I thought was very odd. I don't know. If it, it is odd. I think it's, it's sort of confusing 
the biases politically, you know, obviously the response to the virus has all these political, uh, whether it's subconscious or intentional or people are aware of it or not, um, they fall into these tribalistic camps. And, and so I think if people identify with a certain political party, the perception is the only way to sort of uh, reduce the the harm of the virus is to mask, isolate, hand sanitize, and get vaccines. So anything else is just non-relevant. So I, I think that's where a lot of people sort of gravitated towards because of the, the media that they consumed. That's just my sort of understanding of it. I, I could be off, but it was sort of surprising to me. Even people who are mutual friends who I've had on my podcast, I know you've had on your podcast, who can speak to this concept of immunometabolism, never really mentioned exercise or vitamin D or these things. It was all more, uh, you know, we gotta, we all got to socially isolate and distance uh, and so forth. We're like, well, that doesn't make you more resilient because the big thing that no one really wanted to admit is this is not ever going to go away. So we we can only isolate and distance ourselves for so long until we have to live normal lives and go to work and make money and feed our kids and so forth. So my message, and I know yours was, was like, well, why don't we focus on getting healthy, you know, instead of just isolate and get more and more unhealthy. But yeah, it's, it is super interesting. I think um, there's a lot of like dichotomous thinking, like, um, if you don't isolate or mask or you're not in favor of that, you must want people to die. It's really this cognitive dissonance that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I would encourage anyone listening, go read Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, they dive into the safetyism culture uh, and where a lot of this dichotomous thinking started and how humans are just ripe for falling into these network tribes. And that's, I think, even scarier. And we all need to be aware of that natural bias. And so I personally consume content from both sides of the, of the political spectrum just to like keep my biases in check and sit on ideas for a little while until I speak about things. But yeah, it is quite interesting to see the reaction for sure. I always love seeing your name pop up under a post because I, I too try to follow you know, all sides and really understand where the thinking is coming from and why and keeping abreast on that. I've always been that way. Like I'm a fence walker. I kind of want to know what everyone's saying and doing and, you know, know thy enemy, I guess. But and I don't really consider any side my enemy. I just, I understand, I, tr I do try to understand where they're coming from in all cases. But in this case, what blew me out of the water was I took board exams with these people. Mm -hmm. We all took the same test to get our licenses to become physicians. And we know we were sitting in class together when we learned virology. So mm -hmm. uh, my story wasn't any different than what I learned, than what they learned. Right. And uh, that's the part that got me. I was like, did y'all forget year one? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> did, we, did we miss that class? Because <laughs> I remember you were there, you know? Right. Um, and and it, the weirdness of it, I don't know if it's because I had a growing audience and I was one of them and I wasn't singing their song, but the level of vicious attack was shocking. It was, I mean, just out of the blue, a few people that we both know just came at me and I was like, what in the world? And then expected me to take it and not block them. You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. this is, it was very interesting. It, it made me wonder, you know, who was getting paid. This episode of the Dr. Tina show is brought to you by my personal line of products that you can find inside my store at store.drtina.com. My personal favorite way to optimize my metabolism, aside from the obvious lifestyle interventions that I constantly double down on, like strength training, sleep, stress reduction, and a mostly meat-based diet, is with the following two bestsellers in my line. The metabolism combo, as I call it, of Carb Blunt and Metaboflex. 
Carb Blunt features a favorite herb of mine, berberine, which has been used clinically for a long time for supporting healthy blood glucose levels, as well as a branded ingredient called NC2. NC2 is wildcrafted from brown seaweed and has been shown in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial to statistically and significantly improve markers for glycemic health compared to placebo, who were exposed to the same diet and physical activity program. Metaboflex is a science-based strategy for positively impacting leptin levels. Leptin is a fat-derived hormone that is elevated in some individuals struggling with weight along with joint issues. Healthy leptin activity helps balance energy intake and expenditure by influencing appetite, food cravings, and metabolism. Leptin also impacts joint comfort and function. The main ingredient in Metaboflex has been shown in a double-blind, randomized, controlled study in overweight adults with joint discomfort to significantly reduce joint synovial and serum levels of cytokines, as well as significant improvements in joint comfort along with improved blood lipid profiles and weight loss. While I can't make specific health claims, tell you how to dose them, or make individual health recommendations, I can tell you how they work. As always, check with your provider before beginning any supplement regimen. I did have to give both products a chance to take effect. Listeners of the Dr. Tina Show can enjoy 10% off this favorite combo by using the code METABOLISM10 over inside my store at www.store.drtina.com. Again, head to store.drtina.com, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A, and use the code METABOLISM10 for 10% off when you buy these both together as a combo. So I want to go back to frailty. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm not fat shaming, I'm frailty shaming. <laughs> there we go. That's a way to do it. <laughs> and I, I, I'm going to throw a bone to the elderly because I want you to talk about this, but uh, hit on the points of what frailty, because I have been beating this drum on, on Instagram and on my emails and on my podcast about how frailty really, I believe, is the true crux of risk of death with pretty much everything, period. But also, as we age, it's harder to digest and absorb protein so that you have to eat more and um, you your protein needs increase because you're losing muscle mass. Can you speak to that, please? Yeah, I mean, this is just an amazing point. You know, uh, just, just to sort of back up, you know, various studies over the years have just looked at uh, quantifiable ways to ascertain overall strength. I mean, there's the stand or sorry, sit to stand test. So you can have Sally Smith, who's 87, you know, get up from the stool and see, you know, how hard was that? Do they need, uh, you know, to hold on to the wall or do they need a cane? Uh, gate speed is another way to assess frailty. Um, grip strength is a way to sort of approximate overall uh, muscle strength and, and uh, muscle mass quality and so forth. And there's this new lean mass index that is emerging that's sort of an aggregate of a few different biomarkers. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know the best. I mean, it'd be amazing. Like we have the BMI, we have waist to hip ratio, we have these things, but why don't we have like a quantifiable way to sort of ascertain someone's quantitative, you know, to quantify someone's muscle health. Uh, we don't really have something to that effect at this point in time. Um, there, and the challenge, honestly, I think it's, you know, reading through a lot of this data, um, it's just, it's really more logistics because in medical clinics, you know, there's a scale and there's a tape measure and you stand against the wall, get your height, get your weight, and that's your BMI. But we really should rely upon things more like body mass, I'm sorry, uh, bioimpedance analysis and potentially biannual DEXA scans or every other year DEXA scan, something like that to look at and to be able to quantify lean muscle mass. But anyway, so that that's where things are at. But yeah, I mean, I think, 
you know, again, as we get older, our DHEA levels go down. Uh, this is really problematic uh, for women after menopause because DHEA contributes to all the androgens and the anabolic hormones that help to preserve lean muscle mass. So that's uh, important. As we get older, we naturally get more and more inflamed. It's called inflammaging. And so as you get more inflamed, you're more likely to catabolize or break down skeletal muscle. So we have that, unfortunately, going uh, against us. And as you mentioned, you know, you know, as people get older, their appetite isn't quite there. Uh, their resting metabolic rate might be a little bit lower than it was when they were younger. So they're naturally try, you know, eating things like soups and salads and not getting the protein that they need to help to increase muscle protein synthesis and to build and maintain this lean muscle mass. So, and we're told that protein causes cancer. So, so many people are scared. They know that cancer is really a disease of aging. So if I want to live longer, I should also cut down my protein, thinking that that is going to somehow enhance longevity. But of course, we know that frailty, uh, loss of muscle strength that can come as a consequence of not eating enough protein, especially as you get older, can it hasten or accelerate this muscle loss that can lead to things like falling and breaking bones and hips and much more. Uh, it's really important. And I think this is another aspect. We, we hear a lot about osteoporosis and osteopenia, but there's this new sort of triad uh, linked with that, osteosarcopenic obesity. And so basically what it is, is osteoporosis, loss of lean muscle mass and weight gain. It's this triad. So it sort of happens all together as you get older. You start to lose a little muscle mass, you gain more fat, and you lose bone at the same time. So many people, particularly women, uh, unfortunately, after menopause, they're told they have low bone mineral density. Uh, oftentimes, they also have low muscle mass and increased fat mass. This is a, a recipe for a catastrophic, you know, falling and breaking hip, it's a and disaster. then being sedentary, more immobile. So this is such a big deal. And like we were talking about, uh, a lot of doctors focus on, you know, the, based upon their training, hey, Sally, you need to have more calcium. You need to to go and do more, eat more of a vegetarian diet, lower your inflammation. And they're not told about the importance of, say, eggs and grass-fed beef or, uh, you know, animal-based proteins, fish, things like that. And so uh, I think we're really going to see a reframing of this as many baby boomers are now in this category as they're getting older, Um but I think it, it should. This this is a conversation we have to have. I have to have this conversation with my dad a lot because they're having like tomato soup for dinner. I'm like, Dad, you rode 30 miles on your bike and you lifted weights. You're having tomato soup. Like, come on, we oh, got to no. have a little bit more protein here. Yeah, I I've told every patient for my entire practice. Every patient, literally at the end, I was like, eat more steak and dark chocolate. Eat more steak and dark chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> that was always the prescription. Eat more steak and dark chocolate. And I, I am an under eater and I have a hard time getting enough protein. And I know that's why I carry excess belly fat. And I know that's why I don't, I, why I do end up with um, some joint injury, you know, issues, I should say, not really injuries, but like kind of, they start creaking on me when I lift too heavy, which shouldn't yeah. happen. And it's, it's dietary. Um, you know, what you said about osteosarcopenic obesity, I tried to post about that early on in the pandemic. And it was just way over everyone's head, you know, too big of words. It was just too much for Instagram. And that, you know, as somebody who specialized in regenerative joint therapies, like that was it. That was the crux of everything. For the audience listening, I'm going to do a whole episode on this, but osteoarthritis is is diabetes of the joint and osteoporosis is diabetes of the bone and your joints and muscles and bones are all BFFs. 
like they exist in harmony. So if you have sarcopenia, meaning muscle wasting, that to me is the beginning of the end. That's, that's the, and it turns, when it turns on it, like you said, with the inflammation, it's a pro-inflammatory state. And so it's really, as we age, like the, you're literally battling sarcopenia as an inflammatory state. If you're diabetic, you're literally battling sarcopenia as a, as an inflammatory state. And as those muscles get marbled with fat, pro-inflammatory fat, it is now directly affecting your bones which are alive and well and full of all kinds of interesting cells. And I think very understudied and along with the joints as well, same thing goes there. And so if, if you come into my clinic and you're like, I'm bone on bone, I can guarantee you, you're probably pre-diabetic as well. Your cartilage didn't just decide to disintegrate, right? Your disc did not just decide to herniate out the back of your very thick ligament that holds your discs in. All of this is a sequelae, in my opinion, after treating this directly in patients, it's all diabetes or prediabetes. It's all a metabolic syndrome situation. And so I think we're going to see more of that, uh, hopefully in the research, but it's, it, it is that vicious evil triad and it is devastating. And the, the falls, the fractures of the hip, the fracture usually happens before the fall. It's not the other way around, right? And so what is that telling you about people's bone health? It's it's terrible. And they fall and then the fracture, it's actually worse for men than it is for women, but your risk of death goes up significantly in the next two, five, 10 years. Like if you make it, it's, it's just bad. And I've seen it. I've seen a few patients make it out that came in pretty hardy. Uh, in the first place. And maybe they had some underlying metabolic dysfunction, but they kept their hormones pretty good and check. Like you mentioned, DHEA, we had them on DHEA, we had them on thyroid, we kind of had them on all the things, uh, maybe a little testosterone. And the hip fracture was not the end of everything, but it certainly was the beginning of the decline. And so I don't know, we're not 10 years out yet, but I, I do check in with these older folks because they were my mentors patients too. So I check in every once in a while with emails and uh, their cognition is, but who knows? I mean, cognition starts to slip, but again, your brain shrinks in proportion to your waist circumference. So the bigger your waist circumference, the smaller the gray matter of your brain. I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, Mike, but I hope the audience is hearing all of this in maybe different ways that resonates with them specifically. That oh, maybe awesome. We'll you know, get them to think like, this isn't just, we're not just sitting here saying like, lose weight because we're fatophobic and we don't want you to die of COVID. <laughs> like right. it's so much bigger than that. And I don't know what it is, what it, what does it take? I don't want to scare anybody, but I know that everybody has their one thing that kind of they resonate with and gets them to like, oh shit, I got to do something. Right. And so I don't know if it's the cancer concern or the, um, I mean, I know vanity is a big one. I don't know. That was a big motivating factor for a lot of my patients. It doesn't seem to be a big factor anymore in society, uh, but pain certainly is. And so going back to the joint, I'm going to have Sean Baker on just to talk about joints because I know he was an orthopedic surgeon. So I'm really excited to talk carnivore and joints, but joint pain, if people are suffering with joint pain, I guarantee you if it's chronic, there's something off with the metabolism. I mean, this is a great point. There's, there's some research that I did you know, when I was working for the book, writing the book, Belly Fat Effect in 2013. And I was looking at osteoarthritis and it was quite interesting where pe there's a strong co correlation between leptin levels, which is 
we mentioned visceral fat and, and body fat. Well, fat release, part of why fat is so problematic from a you know, cancerous factor standpoint, autoimmune standpoint, is because fat is not just this benign thing. It's releasing all sorts of uh, inflammatory adipocytokines. One of them is leptin. There's visfatin, there's resistin, there's all these things. Well, it turns out that leptin actually exacerbates various autoimmune conditions and can worsen arthritis. But there's some very interesting studies showing that when people lose weight, the arthritis in their hands gets better sometimes before the arthritis in their knees. But you might be thinking, well, that makes sense. But you're like, well, wait, they're not walking on their hands. So <laughs> how would the arthritis in their hands get better? Well, it turns out that there's a reduction in leptin. And, and these patients that, that had a more pronounced, because everyone's levels of leptin is slightly heterogeneous. There's a lot of heterogeneity and individualization with regards to leptin. But there was a strong correlation between reduction in the symptoms, like the, the pain that you mentioned that some people experience with arthritis, and it correlated with reduced uh, leptin. So anyway, I think it's important to just recognize it. Yeah, I mean, if you have achy joints or pain or arthritis and so forth, um, yeah, that could be coming from fat that's releasing all these nasty cytokines. So eat less processed food, exercise more, walk after your meals, work on circadian rhythms. That can hit, I think, 80% of it. Right? There's other things yeah. there, but um, we're not talking rocket science here. This isn't a total, uh, you know, you have to join CrossFit seven days a week. This, that's not what this is about. No, you nailed it. You're, that is a damn good book, by the way. I go okay. back to that book so often. I want the audience everywhere. I know it, you wrote it a long time ago, but I love that book. And it's so well referenced. I just remember reading. I barely knew you then. And I remember reading it and the whole time being like, nice. <laughs> so cool. smart. And so leptin resistance is a real yep. thing. You just hit on it. It definitely contributes to arthritis and joint pain and degeneration of cartilage. So it is a you know, this another biochemical impact here. And guess what? High leptin levels correlates with COVID deaths and risk of dying from COVID. So I mean, this all goes, it all fits together perfectly in a perfect puzzle. I feel like you and I have been, and you know, like, uh, Sean Stevenson and a couple other people have been building out this puzzle. And yeah, we yeah. each contribute a piece, you know, and it's this big, beautiful puzzle that now that we have the studies to back every single, I, I just want to, I want to teach, we all need a t-shirt that says I was right. Although it's a bittersweet, terrible, I was right. Like it doesn't make <laughs> me feel any better to say it, but I, yeah. it's like that maybe that's the puzzle, right? But it, 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 uh, it all goes together into this picture of like, yeah, we were right about all of this the whole time. Cause duh, it all makes sense. Like this makes sense. And if as much effort was put upon teaching people how to be metabolically sound, the basics you just mentioned. Remember those little pedometers that were just, you know, oh, yeah. cheapy plastic? I'm, I keep trying to find them because I want to brand them and send them out with supplements. But um, those little clip-on pedometers, if they just sent everybody some freaking pedometers mm -hmm. and and uh, started replaying Jack LaLanne shows yeah. in the morning. I cuz I remember as a kid waking up and there was always some kind of exercise program on that was simple and geared towards maybe the middle-aged or elderly just to keep them active and moving because the frailty piece like we talked about children getting more obese and of course there's all kinds of issues happening with children through this pandemic but the I am a I truly honor my elders and the people before me and to see what we did to our elders and the fact that we locked away people who had high-functioning brains and good bodies, and by the end of it, they were suffering from dementia and all the things and the massive frailty, which makes them far more susceptible. That truly was a – I mean, there's so many crimes against humanity I could point to, but that was a big one for me that really gets me going. And the frailty piece is 
that's the one thing we can do something about, right? We can add muscle. And it's maybe we just, and people say, oh, you're privileged. It's like, fucking put some water or sand in some jugs. You know, you'll laugh. I thought of you. I, I bought some uh, bags to weight my lights for oh, nice. my, and I, my husband went and got play sand, playground sand to put in them. And I was weighing them. And I'm like, these are amazing. And actually the way that they just flop over and there's a handle, like that could be a kettlebell. You know, I mean, like for $15, I got five, uh, you know, bags. And then for three bucks, I got a bag of sand. And I was like, people could make for $20, people could have a variety of weight sizes. Totally. This is There's so much you can do. Push-ups, air squats. I mean, yeah, a million one things. But but yeah, I don't know why people get irritated about this. I mean, we, not to weave in vaccines to this conversation, but it's this conversation, everything that we've talked about also make the vaccines more efficacious. So no matter where you sit on the fence, I mean, this is data that no one even talked about. And the data from healthcare workers in Italy that have been tracking this quite extensively is people who don't exercise, people who have belly fat don't have the same seroprotection or antibody levels post-vaccination and they wane faster. So again, everyone should, we shouldn't be polarized over this message of get healthy. Um, particularly with exercise and real food. We can split hairs about if you want to do a plant-based version or a carnivore keto, whatever. The, fine, we'll split hairs around the fringes. But most people, we should have, should be should be agreeing with this, especially, again, that, that new data. Several different studies actually out of Italy showing uh, and other parts of Europe that, that people who exercise have a much higher levels of post-vaccination uh, titers so, and, and lower rates of reinfection or breakthrough cases. But yeah. It's uh, and the, much yeah, much higher rates of survival mm-hmm. just from exercising. And they didn't even specify what kind of exercise. It was like totally. people were moderately active and they had like a 45% reduction of death <laughs> or right. a 70, you know, some studies that was much higher. And we knew, I, I was trying to beat that drum too early on. We knew from influenza vaccines and other vaccines that those who are most prone to this virus do not seroconvert well. To vaccination, period. So why would we think this would be any different? Their immune systems are jacked up, like you mentioned. And so if we know that the obese and frail and sickly and elderly don't seroconvert, I mean, the the flu vaccine for the elderly is like four times the dose of a, a regular flu vaccine. If we know that information going in, why was there no effort to help these people? Yeah get out of that category so that their vaccine would work better. I'm with you. I think you and I both have been saying that similarly. Like, it doesn't matter if you're pro or anti-vax. I'm not either. I don't care what people want to do to protect themselves. But when it starts impacting me and my livelihood and my child and your child, like that's when I, and and my, you know, the grandmas, (laughs) Mm -hmm. don't mess with the grandmas. (laughs) That's when I get mad. (laughs) So awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you quickly, so you just, I, I alluded to it. Can you talk a little bit about that study that you just, you have an amazing podcast. Every, and I want to thank you. I know I say this always, but like you were the reason I got started online. You put me on the map. You had me on your show and I am so appreciative. And you've done, you've helped highlight so much of naturopathic medicine as well, which I am always appreciative of because a lot of these doctors are brilliant and they're brilliance would be trapped in their office forever if it weren't for platforms like yours. So thank you for all of the work you've done. But you just recently covered a study that came out in 2022 about lean, you know, it's not so much the fat, and I know we've said this, but like, say it again, it's not so much the fat mass we're worried about, although that is problematic. The lean muscle mass or lack of really 
there was like a 74% reduction or something in those who had adequate lean muscle mass. Yeah, with incidence in overall mortality over, I think it was a five-year period, there was a significant, it was just more significantly correlated with disease protection, as is the correlation with increased fat mass. So again, there, the protection is actually much more pronounced, particularly over the age of 60, with regards to muscle uh and in terms of, and then fat wasn't as tightly correlated with risk factors. So again, it's just, instead of just myopically focusing on how can I lose the weight, I think we should reframe it into how can I maintain and preserve muscle? And as a natural side effect of doing the things that help build and maintain muscle, the weight will come off. So I, I just think it's a better perspective because if you just focus on losing weight, there's so many unhealthy ways to do it. You can just go, you can fast all day, you can eat tomato soup, and you can do you can overexercise. Okay, yeah, you might lose a little body fat, but you're also going to have compensations in your resting metabolic rate. Your RMR will go down, uh, your energy expenditure will will go down, and you'll your hormones will will dive and you'll lose muscle. So it's more important in my estimation based upon the data as well to prioritize strength and and uh, muscle mass and uh, you know as a natural you know sort of benefit side benefit of that is you you stay lean because muscle is more metabolically active uh, in the whole thing. So yeah, that's the data there. But there, there's a bunch of different studies and these started coming out in like 2009 and 2013 um correlating um this protective effect of muscle and yeah. And people just say, well, gosh, I'm already elderly. I'm already, you know, over the age of 60. What do I do? Well, I mean, you can do some of these studies have mentioned um, just gardening, just basic movements. It doesn't have to be in the gym. I encourage my clients to find the movement that they enjoy so that it becomes a habit. If you love gardening, by all means, just, just, Start to do the hard work. Churn your compost a little bit more frequently than you would. Um, you know, just don't hire, don't use the backhoe to move that soil. You do it with a shovel. Like do things yourself uh, and make it make it fun. Reward yourself periodically. Uh, buy yourself a little vacation or do something. Go, take yourself out to dinner when you're more consistent with this. So the the big thing here in closing conclusion with regards to preserving muscle mass uh, is to make it a consistent habit because you know we've heard it if you, if you don't use it you're going to lose it so that's the most important thing uh, that I think and so what I, I what I like to do is just bake it into my extra bake it into my routine all the time so when I'm walking the dogs I'll bring a weighted vest instead of just walk without um, you know you don't have to use the weights that I use you could use 20 pounds you could do something um, Put a kettlebell somewhere. So when you go and you're working from home, you can do some kettlebell swings. You can do some some push-ups. If you're brand new to this, you have achy joints and so forth, you can do blood flow restriction. So that's a really low-weighted way to still get some of that hypertrophy signaling. So the other day I was kind of tired and I didn't want to lift weights. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get the BFR bands out. And then actually just use like, literally, I said BFR bands, but also use banded exercises once the BFR bands are on and got a great workout. I was tired. Like, that's all I did. It was like, you know, it was fine. Uh, So it doesn't have to be super explosive, super intense with a coach, you know, yelling at you. This can be a lot of things. (laughs) No way. You you know? I do like slow, methodical old lady lifting. I'm down with it. It's it's slow and methodical and it's, uh, it, it honors my hormones and it honors my adrenals. And I am, I am good with it. When I get too metabolic, that's when I start injuring myself. So I, I am, I so support what you're saying. I, I wish people, I, they've got it in their head that like CrossFit and, you know, yeah. you've got to be a puddle of sweat on the ground to win. And I, I, then I see videos of good strength and conditioning coaches and they've got 85 year olds deadlifting 300 pounds, you know, and I'm like, that's, 
that journey that that lady took to get to that is that's what it's about, you know? So this is like training for life. I want to be doing this when I'm 80. This isn't about, and we really got to get in front of it. I don't think we've drilled that down enough. Your muscle loss is so, uh, it, it, you know, it's it's not linear, it, it's exponential, and it goes up as very quickly as we age. And so it's not even just don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. It's like, if you don't fight for it and start building it as soon as you possibly can, if you're in your 20s, heed my warning, I wish I had found this then. Uh, 40s, I started training when I was 40. I, I didn't, I didn't do much before that. And so you can start at any time. And it's just a personal journey. It's not, you know, I don't lift what you lift. I don't work out like you work out. And you're going to work out different in 20 years from now. Totally. You know, and it's just a matter of preserving what you've got. And I saw that you, you're looking very buff lately, by the way. So I wanted to congratulate you. I know that's not an easy feat to pack muscle on. And sometimes we add a little and sometimes we waste a little, right? When we're stressed out or we go through a sickness. And so I look at muscle as just that, that layer of insurance. So when I, I, I went into COVID a little thick on purpose, like I really was going for hypertrophy and I had a little extra fat on me because I knew it was such a severely wasting condition for so many people. I tend to waste when I get sick. And so, and I did, I wasted and I lost my butt and I'm still working to get it back. But I knew that going in and that's something that I know that we've both been warning people about. It's like, you know, go into this with like a a shield of armor, if you will. And I think that that holds true for any condition that you're going to encounter, whether it's cancer. If we have studies showing, if you go into cancer, with muscle, you're better off. Uh, you're better. You're, you're the chances of you getting a chronic condition if you have muscle are less. So it's just, it's not chicken and egg. It's both. It's like build the damn muscle at all costs and do so in a way that's safe and effective. And like you said, little bits add up significantly. Totally. Yeah, bits, bits, bit by bit. I actually take 15 pound dumbbells and I we have a stairwell that's like three le- or two levels, but it turns mm. in the middle. Uh, the middle floor and I try level house, I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I keep the weights on the middle level. So I'll grab them and I'll walk up the stairs and come back down the stairs and put them down. And then I'll grab them and go down the stairs and come back up the stairs. And it's just something I do when I'm bored and alone, but it adds that extra layer of of resilience to the to the movement. So awesome, Mike. Well, this has been such a pleasure. I all my girlfriends were so excited you were coming on. Everyone was like, Metabolic Mike, we love him. So <laughs> Always an honor to talk to you, Mike. Can you please tell the audience of all your wonderful offerings and where they can find you? Sure. Well, thanks again for having me on. It's always fun to chat about these different topics and so forth, Dr. Tina. Yeah, so pretty simple. You know, my website is highintensityhealth.com and then that's the YouTube uh, as well and then podcast. And then the only thing that's slightly different is on Instagram, it's metabolic underscore Mike. Um, so yeah, that's where I post stuff. Um, I'm more active, I would say, on YouTube and just trying to, you know, provide really good content there. Uh, Instagram, honestly, I, I kind of joke around. It's like a whatever to me because it, you know, they throttle you back so much and and all that. So I do a little like political satire there, a little health stuff there. But yeah, mostly YouTube. If you're interested in these topics, would be where folks would want to check it out. Yeah, for sure. We will put the show notes. And your your YouTube channel is amazing, and I always learn so much from you. And I um I highly encourage everyone to get on your email list as well because you send out excellent emails and updates whenever you post onto the YouTube. So, awesome. Well, thank you, sir, for being here. It's always yeah. a pleasure, and I wish you the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Tina Show. Please be sure to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tina, that's D-R-T-Y-N-A and Dr. Tina 2.0, as well as visit my website at drtina.com. 
This is a Resonant Media production produced by Drake Peterson and mixed by Chris McCone. The theme song is by John the Guilt. As always, you can email the show at podcast at drtina.com. And if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. See you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practices of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is intended not to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.